Good evening to you. Second Kings chapter eight this evening. And if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave to them and get their attention, they'll be glad to get a Bible in your hands. Otherwise, you'll be fairly lost on Sunday nights as we cover a fair amount of scripture, fair being relative um, on the Sunday nights. But it's more than a verse or two anyway. Haven't gotten that bad. Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, Second Kings chapter 8. And then Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life. And this is the Shunammite woman who you remember her husband and her had uh, kind of added on a room to their house and made it a place of hospitality for eating and staying in uh, with his servant Gehazi as he was doing this ministry circuit continually through the land of Israel to be a spiritual influence in the land. And so he said to her, Arise and go, you and your household, husband, children, and stay wherever you can, because the Lord has called for a famine to come into the land of Israel, and furthermore it will come upon the land for seven years. That's a long famine. And... Uh, I think you don't even have to be a farmer uh, to to realize that uh, probably a famine caused by drought, a drought of seven years. That's going to be a real problem anywhere that God wants to introduce that into the world. And he's doing it because of the sin of the nation of Israel. Again, these aren't supposed to be pagans. They're supposed to be following him. They're God's people. And uh, because of their disobedience, The Lord steps in and he's going to bring this famine to continue to try and get their attention. Remember, they're following at this time their main object of worship instead of the Lord is this false god Baal, who was supposed to be the nature god in control of all of these things. And so here is Elisha. He declares the drought coming before it occurs. Uh, testimony to the nation that God is in control of the weather, but all is not in the control uh, of the weather. And I'll tell you something, every time and every year that God gives us rain in this state (laughs) and he fills those reservoirs again, I just thank him for his grace because we don't deserve it in this state. But there's always, no matter where, and certainly everywhere in the United States, but in California, there's a fight for the heart of this state. So it hasn't been all lost to wickedness and sin. And uh, God is gracious when he fills those reservoirs because you put seven years of drought together and we don't even want to think about it in order to get uh, the attention of people. And so the warning goes out. God is in control of everything. And so the woman, she arose in response to this prophecy, did according to the sayings of a saying of the man of God. And she went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines for seven years. And so she didn't have to go very far to find a, a land that was less impacted uh, by the famine, a neighboring country of the Philistines. And so that's where she went. God is very focused in this drought, very uh, precise. And so she obeyed. And it came to pass at the end of the seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines. And she discovered that someone had taken over her home and her land and was squatting on it now. And 
Uh, just because she vacated the land for seven years didn't mean that the land moved from her ownership. And uh, so this is what was going on. And so what she had to do was go to the king in order to appeal to the king uh, for her house and for her land to be returned to her. Well, at the time that she goes to the king to approach him about returning the land uh, to her, the king happens to be in a conversation with Gehazi, uh, Elisha's servant who was smitten with leprosy. And the servant of the man of God uh, and the king asked the servant, tell me, please, all the great things Elisha has done. Now, that's weird. This guy's just as wicked as can be. I mean, so outwardly, he hates Elisha, his stand for righteousness, his stand for godliness. But Gehazi comes and maybe in the king, there's like this secret admira- admiration uh, for Elisha. But he's heard of all these stories and all. And here's the guy that's been right at his right hand during all of these miracles. And he said, so he just says, tell me some Elisha stories. And so it happened as he was telling the king the greatest story of all. You can't top resurrection. So he starts to tell the king the story of how God used Elisha in the resurrection of the boy whose head got got the headache and maybe an aneurysm or a stroke of some kind out in the field, died, was put in the upper room. We remember a few weeks ago. Gehazi recounts the whole story. I went there. I laid the staff on him. It didn't do any good. Elisha went on, laid on the boy, and then he began to to cough and to sneeze. And then God raised him from the dead. You don't have a greater miracle than that. So he's going to give you a miracle. I'll give you the top miracle. And how he had raised the dead to life and that there was the uh, and that there was the woman whose son he restored to life appealing to the king for her house and for her land. So he's telling the story and a woman walks in the door. What a coincidence. She can thank her lucky stars. So she walks in. Timing couldn't be better. And the king is so excited as she comes now. She's the object of the story. The boy is probably there and all. The husband appears to have died because otherwise he would be making the appeal to the king. He was elderly and they didn't have able to have children. And so Gehazi then interrupts the story at the end there. And he says, oh, oh my Lord, O king, this is the woman. And this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. I mean, imagine the surprise of anyone that would walk in the door in all of Israel. And he's shocked at it and then declares, this is the very woman that this happened to. And so as she comes in, it's such a great moment. The king asked the woman and she told him. And so the king then appointed a certain officer for her. And said, restore all that was hers, give her back the land, give her back her house. And not only that, all of the proceeds of the land from the day that she left the land until now. So everything that the land produced for seven years and the profit of it, that was to be given to her as well. It's a beautiful picture, an illustration of God's providence that he 
guides our lives as his children. It is, I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill. I don't want to make anybody feel terrible. But I do it. So, but I'm not going to do it on purpose. One of the things that makes me cringe when I hear a Christian say it is when they say to me as I'm leaving, good luck. Because as Christians, we don't believe in luck. We don't believe in coincidences. We believe in the providence of God. We believe that we love God and are the called according to his purposes, Romans 8.28. And that he has promised now to direct our lives and to work all things together for good in our lives. And that's a beautiful thing to rest in. It's interesting uh, to, and I think one of the great blessings, and there's so many blessings of obedience to God's word. But as we just live a life of simple obedience to God's word, it's amazing as the months roll on and as years roll on, how many stories each of us could tell of we could look back on a situation where God just left his fingerprints all over it. It's so obvious that he was at work just like this. I mean, she probably headed out of there walking 18 inches off of the ground. God, you're too much. Wow. And and that's that's one of the great experiences is we just obey the Lord, walk with the Lord. We'll see his fingerprints on situations in our life. He will exercise his providence in our life, direct our lives in that way. And the person that doesn't walk obediently with the Lord, she did. That almost never happens in their life or they're so dull to the Lord, they don't recognize it. And so his providence of God, his sovereignty, his almightiness at work in our lives. It's beautiful to see. I'm absolutely sure that it happens way more than any of us recognize it. But we recognize it enough to really be humbled. It is his grace and to give him praise for it. It's a beautiful picture in the Old Testament. And then Elisha went to Damascus and Ben uh, Hadad, I, I always say, hey, dad, but either way, I'll probably skip back and forth both ways in the course of the Bible study. So Ben Hadad was the king of Syria and he was sick. And it was told him saying the man of God was has come here. So I don't even have to say it's Elisha. Remember Ben Hadad, he's, he was the guy that sent Naaman, the Syrian, who was the leper to go get cleansed of his his leprosy. And God used Elisha to do it. So everybody all over knew how God was using this guy. And so, hey, you're sick. We've got a guy that God does miracles through has come right into town. And the king said to Hazael, go take a present in your hand. Go meet the man of God. Inquire of the Lord by him. It's funny when you on your deathbed, how now all of a sudden everybody turns to the Lord. Go and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, shall I recover from this disease? Well, that would be the big question in our mind if we were in his shoes. And so Hazael went to meet uh, Elisha, took a present with him. Now, if you're going to get a present, here's a good present. Brought to him every good thing of Damascus, one of the great cities and trading centers of the whole world at that time. Forty camel loads. All under the Christmas tree. I mean, that's a now you, 
We don't know if he accepted the gift. He might have surely brought it back to the schools of the prophets and spread it around. A lot of times what they would do, maybe they were like 40 camels just absolutely laden with goods. Could have been. But a lot of times in the ancient world, they would put one great gift on each camel and kind of the, the big presentation. Still 40 things on the camels. I'm not sneezing at it at all. So he came with these 40 camel loads and he came and he stood before Elisha and he said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? And Elisha said to him, Go and say to him, You shall surely recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. It's not that Elisha is lying here. He's saying to Hazael, He's going to recover of the disease that he has at this moment. But God is showing me he's going to die from a different cause. And then Elisha set his countenance in a stare on Hazael until he was ashamed. And then the man of God began to weep and the man of God wept. So here he is. Elisha looks looks right into his face, just this penetrating look. And he just looked at him for so long, just staring right into his face, that Hazael gets uncomfortable with it. It's like Elisha's looking right through him. I mean, you don't like anybody looking at you that way, but you don't like a prophet doing that, because when you're a Hazael and he's a wicked man, it can't be good news. So he looks, and not only is he just looking straight through this guy, but then he starts to weep as he's reading this man's life. And Hazael said, why is my Lord weeping? And he answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire. Their young men you will kill with a sword. You will dash their children and rip open their women with child. And he, w- and he would end up doing all of that. And Hazael said, but what is your servant, a dog? Now, we think of a dog on our lap. We think of a Labrador retriever. We think of a golden retriever. Wonderful pets will get them artificial hips and heart transplants and liver transplants. The cats we just throw out in the garbage can. But the dogs will go to any extreme. I know you people with your cats, they get leukemia. You go broke, sell the house just to keep them alive. And so you've got your problems, too. But anyway, we think of dogs in a different way. In those days, he's talking about scavenger dogs. They're dogs that just ate the garbage out in the roads. They were dangerous and uh, just you know, just savage beasts. And so he's saying this is something that a dog would do to a some roadkill that they found on the road. And you're accusing me of this, that I would you think I would do this gross thing. And Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria. And then we learn how that happened. He departed from Elisha, came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would surely recover. Oh, praise the Lord. I mean, his heart has to just be soaring. But it happened on the next day that Hazael took a thick cloth, dipped it in water, 
spread it over his face, suffocated him to death, did it in a way that didn't leave any marks, so that he died, and Hazael, Hazael reigned in his place, just as Elisha had predicted. He became king, and ended up ruling for 40 years, and he will cause terrible, terrible problems for Israel. And the only reason that he will cause problems for Israel is because uh, of Israel's disobedience to the Lord and uh, it left them vulnerable uh, to his attack and, and the success of his attack. Now, in the fifth year of Joram, king of Ahab, or the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, having been king of Judah, Jehoram, there'll be a test on this and at the end, the son of Jehoshaphat began to reign as king in Judah. So we've been in the north, uh, uh, northern kingdom of Israel. Now our focus goes to the south, uh, of, into the southern kingdom of Judah and the reign of Jehoram. He was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned eight years in Jerusalem and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He was wicked. Uh, just as the house of Ahab had done, here's the reason for, it's a reason word, the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And so he married a descendant of Ahab and Jezebel, and this woman is just a chip off the old uh, block ass. She's just like her mother, and uh, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so here is a woman, this, is, this man, he is the son of one of the greatest kings in the history of Judah, Jehoshaphat. He is the grandson of one of the greatest kings in the history of Judah, Asa. And the evil influence of a wife undoes all of the godly influence of the father and of the grandfather. So important who we choose to marry, not just someone who knows the Lord but loves the Lord and will be an influence for godliness in our lives. And so this is what he got himself into. But even if we find ourselves in this position that he found himself in here, in this marriage, we do not have to follow a wicked or an ungodly spouse in their wicked activities. We can choose and determine not to be a part of their sin or to be influenced by their sin, but to trust God to make us an influence in that marriage for godliness. He yielded. He's a very weak man and a weak king, and he uh, uh, yielded on all of those fronts. And so, yet the Lord did not destroy Judah, didn't judge Judah, for the sake of his servant David, as he promised him to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. So Judah uh, didn't, wasn't judged as early as Israel was for the simple reason that they had several good kings. And the northern kingdom of Israel never had a single good king. And for the other reason is God's great love for David. Sometimes I think related to our own nation. How often one generation can look... And realize we are reaping the benefits of the righteousness and the godliness of previous generations. 
And not to take that for granted, because that kind of thing will run out one day. But Judah had that. God was being gracious to them because of his promises to David. Now, in his days, in the days of Jehoram, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. And, and so, as we saw before, at the time where there would be a change of, of king, uh, these uh, neighboring territories or countries that had been put into subjection to Israel would then test the resolve of the king to hold on to these uh, territories and uh, and rebel against them. And, and so Edom now rebels against Judah's authority. They made a king over themselves. They sensed a weakness in Joram. So Joram went to Zaire and all his chariots with him, and then he rose by night. He attacked the Edomites unsuccessfully. They then surrounded him and the captains of the chariots. And so in this terrible strait that they were in, the troops were able to break out, and and they fled in retreat back to their own tents. And thus, because of this defeat, Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day, and then a city by the name of Libna was emboldened by the success of the Edomites, and so they revolted uh, against Joram. He's called Joram and Jehoram, both names in the Bible, so I'm not being deliberately confusing for you. Uh, so um, this was the weakness, and this is kind of the dynamic that was going on because of uh, the wickedness of his reign. Now, the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, it'll get worse because we'll be dealing with a Joram in the north and a Joram in the south, and the Ahaziah in the north and in the, all of it at the same time. So um, it gets kind of fun right in here. Now, the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And so Joram rested with his fathers in the city of David, and then Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Joram, king of Judah, began to reign. Sometimes we look at this and we say, what's with all these names and all the times? and all? It's a historical book. It's a historical book. It's not just a historical book. But these events happened in history. God introducing himself into human history in these miracles and in, in overseeing the nation of Israel and all these things that marches right into our, our days. And Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. And his mother na- mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. And he walked in the way of the house of Ahab. And so he did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. So he marries also into uh, the family of Ahab. Now he went with Joram. So now you've got uh, Ahaziah and uh, in, and, uh, uh, in the north, and you've got Joram. Both of them had a common enemy in Hazael, the king of Syria at that time. And so they united together uh, to go to war against Hazael, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead. And as a result of the battle, the Syrians wounded Joram. And then King Joram retreated back from the battle, went to Jezreel, 
uh, in order to recover from the wounds which he had inflicted, uh, had been uh, uh, inflicted with uh, by the Syrians at Ramah and when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab and Jezreel, because he was sick. So he goes over to, they both had gotten in the battle. The battle went sideways on them. Hazael was victorious on some level. And so his, he, uh, Joram is his uncle. So he goes to Jezreel to find out how his uncle is recovering from his wounds. And Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, get yourself ready and take this flask of oil in your hand. And I want you to go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive at Ramoth Gilead, look there for a man named Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. So it mentions the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, to let us know that Jehu was not a son of the king Jehoshaphat but of a different Jehoshaphat. And I want you to find that guy in Ramoth Gilead, and I want you to go in, make him rise from among his associates. You'll find him surrounded by his peers. Take him into an inner room. And then take the flask of oil, pour it on his head, and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel, and then open the door and flee. Do not delay. And so this is the instruction that Elisha gives to this uh, fellow prophet to go on uh, this particular errand. Sometimes we can look at it and wonder, why didn't Elisha go in and anoint uh, Jehu, the king, over Israel? One of the reasons is that, is that um, he would have been immediately recognized and uh, a lot of attention would have been drawn to Jehu as a result of it. And Jehu, in being anointed as the king, he's going to depend on secrecy in order to accomplish what God is calling him to do. And so the, the prophet was to go pour oil on the head of Jehu, oil, symbol of the Holy Spirit, indicating that God was going to empower Jehu with the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill what God was calling him to do as the king. So verse 4, the obedience of the young man. He went to Ramoth Gilead, and when he arrived, there were the captains of the army sitting. Just as Elisha said, you'll find them. These are all, they're all military commanders. Jehu uh, began, interestingly enough, as the, uh, one of the charioteers or one of the chariot drivers under Ahab. And then now he's the commander of the whole army of the northern kingdom of, of Israel. And so he's there with all of the other leaders of the army. They're at Ramoth Gilead. There's just been a defeat at the hands of Syria. So they're apparently holding a place there to keep uh, further Syrian infiltration into Israeli uh, held land. And so there they sit, kind of a standoff with the Syrian army. And the prophet shows up and says, I have a commander. I have a message for you, commander. And Jehu said, for which one of us? And he said, for you, commander. And then Jehu arose. He went into the house and the prophet poured the oil on his head and said to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. So now he's uh, called his king, anointed his king. 
Here was his commission that, that he was to fulfill for the Lord. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master. In other words, completely obliterate his bloodline. Destroy every male heir that he has. That I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. Under Jezebel, Jezebel with Ahab's authority had destroyed all, every prophet of the Lord that they could get their hands on in the northern kingdom of Israel. It was a bloodbath. And, and so this had been done under his watch with his approval. God had watched it knowing that he was going to bring judgment upon uh, the lineage of Ahab for this. And the descendants of Ahab were simply following their father uh, in his wickedness. And so he's called to destroy the, the entire bloodline of the king. God is going to do something different. And when we read some of this stuff in the Old Testament, uh, some people are horrified by this kind of thing. It doesn't horrify me at all. It doesn't say that I'm better than anyone else. But it doesn't bother me. And I'll tell you why. So here we live in the West. We have elections. We have this. We have that. If we get someone elected for office, some kind of a deal, we know we just got to wait two years. We got to wait four years and we, six years in some cases with uh, senators and we can get them out. This isn't that kind of situation. They have already been under the wickedness of Ahab and Jezebel for decades the whole country is not only engaged in the worship of the golden calves introduced by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused all of Israel to sin, but they've introduced Baal worship in, in the darkness, in the witchcraft, in all the things that are going on, the wholesale slaughter of anybody that stands for God in the land. And if you put yourself in that place, and much of the world tonight is in that place. You can find yourself not horrified by a passage like this, but hoping that such a thing would happen in your country too. As one ruthless dictator is followed by his son and then by his grandson, and, and in the case of some parts of the world, literally hundreds of millions of people die because of their wickedness and their folly. So I don't have any problem with God stepping into human history and bringing an end to that kind of wickedness. And certainly not as it relates to... Uh, but let me give a caveat. We can't do that. No nation is free to do that. God is free to do that because He has the wisdom and, and the perspective to be able to do it. And so God says, I'm done with this. I have warned them. I have warned them. I warned them on Mount Carmel. I've warned them through miracles. I've warned them through my word. I've warned, I've warned, I've warned, I've warned. I'm going to drop the hammer now on this, and I'm going to bring this to an end. So it wasn't like they hadn't been warned. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel, both bond and free, every descendant of Ahab, which would, who would then make a claim for the throne. And so I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of 
Baasha, the son of Ahijah, where he brought those rains to an end as well. And he said further concerning Jezebel, the dog shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And then he opened the door and fled. Now, for a queen to die and not only be unburied, left unburied, but then left for the dogs to eat, that you just couldn't you couldn't get more horrifying in the in a Jewish mind that a queen would end up being treated like that. And yet it, the prophecy is made that this is exactly what is going to happen to her. And the prophet is simply re- repeating the prophecy that Elisha had made uh, years earlier. Then, in obedience to uh, uh, Elisha, he opens the door and he just runs out of there. I don't think he's running for his safety. I think that the, Elisha said, deliver the message and get out of there. Because don't stick around. Don't grab a bite to eat. Don't get chatty. Don't do anything that lessens the weight or the impact of the message that I've called you to deliver. So he delivers the message and he gets out. The message just now sits as it's supposed to on Jehu. And then Jehu came out uh, to the servants of his master. And some one of them said to him, is everything well? Uh, why did this madman come to you? So he had kind of a low opinion of the prophets, evidently. And uh, or here's this guy comes in out of nowhere. They're just sitting around a table. Got to talk to you a secret. Come in here, everything. And then whew, he's gone again, you know, so the, what in the world? You, these prophets, I mean, who can make heads or tails of them? And so they're kind of, you know, telling prophet jokes here a little bit. And and he said to them, you know, the man in his babble. I mean, he just came in, you know, these guys, they can just say anything and everything. And then they're gone. And then they said to him, a lie. Tell us now, what did he come in and do? Now, another thing that could be happening here is that uh, Jehu comes out from being anointed and he thinks that his buddies have kind of hired a prophet to put him up to this whole thing. Hey, you're the next king of Israel. And then Eli, uh, uh, Jehu comes out and says, I'm the next king of Israel. And I says, ah, ha, ha. it was a joke, you big dope. That was we set the whole thing up. So he doesn't know what in the world's going on here. And so when he's talking with them and he realizes they don't know what's happening at all, all of a sudden it dawns on them. Hey, God's up to something here. Don't you're. You're not being truthful with us. Tell us what happened here. And then he said, thus and thus, he spoke to me, saying, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. And and probably the oil dripping from his head was a giveaway that something of this kind was happening. And then notice what each of the men did. They hastened to take their garment and uh, their wrap that they had, threw it down onto the ground under his feet, indicating their submission to him now as the king. And uh, he went then to the top of the steps in in the building that they were in the highest uh, ground. They blew the trumpets and they pronounced Jehu is king. And so this kind of impromptu coronation occurs. They are all for him becoming uh, the next king of Israel. And uh, he has their support. And so Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, 
conspired against Joram. So now he's going to put this plan in action. God has called him to do it. Now he's going to do it. Now, Joram had been defending Ramoth Gilead, he and all of Israel against Hazael, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from his wounds, which the Syrians had afflicted on him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. And Jehu said uh, to the men who were with him, if you're so minded, if you want to follow me in what God has called me to do here, let no one leave or escape from the city to go and tell it in Jezreel. Don't anybody leave. Go shout through the land. Hip, hip, hooray. Jehu's king, because Joram, uh, Joram will then hear that. Uh, he will then uh, use that opportunity to prepare his defenses and things will be more difficult than, than they need to be. And so Jehu rode in a chariot and he went to Jezreel for Joram was laid up there and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to see his uncle uh, Joram. Now, a watchman was on the tower in Jezreel and he was doing his job and he saw a com- saw the company of Jehu as uh, they came as he came. So he sees this dust in the distance. He knows that uh, horses are involved. Uh, it's quite a distance. He doesn't know that it's Jehu yet. So he does what he's supposed to do. And he announces to the city, I see a company of men. And Joram said, get a horseman, send him out to race on out to meet them and let him say, is it peace? And so the king doesn't know whether uh, the Syrians have reattacked. It's bad news. Uh, they're heading for Jezreel. They've conquered uh, Ramoth Gilead. So he sends a messenger to find out even more quickly what is the news. What is this all about? And so the horsemen went out to meet him and said, thus says the king is at peace. And Jehu said, what have you to do with peace? Nope. You know. You're part of that king. You're a part of supporting this terrible, wicked mess that the descendants of Ahab have turned Israel into. Uh, Don't be talking to me about peace. He ordered him to turn around and follow him, not to go back and give any kind of a warning. You become a part of our group. And the watchman reported then the activity saying the messenger went out to them, but he's not coming back. Weird. And then he sent out a second horseman who came out to them and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu answered and said, what do you have to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. And so the watchman reported, saying, he went out to them and is not coming back. And then I always like this. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Now, um, don't get like a personalized license plate, Jehu, or something like that, say, legitimizing your driving uh, biblically. What's going on here is he was a commander and commander over uh, the chariot portion of the Israeli army. And uh, so he was known evidently for being very heroic and driving these chariots absolutely full speed into battle. And so they recognize this as a characteristic of his nobody rides with that kind of fervor except for Jehu. It's got to be him. So we're not talking about bad drivers or going 30 miles above the speed limit. 
So he's going. And the idea is this. This is Jehu. And he is driving this thing like he is headed to battle. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, this does not look like he's coming uh, to have tea with the king. It looks like he's coming to do battle here. And so this is what he's doing. He's doing with great speed. And then Joram said, make ready. And his chariot was made ready. And then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, they each went out, each in his chariot. And they went out to meet Jehu. And uh, apparently, <clears throat> Joram feels that uh, he, he doesn't doubt Jehu's loyalty at this point. He feels that he mu- Jehu must be bringing news from the battlefront that he does not want to entrust to messengers. So I will go out there myself and get that information from him. And so he went out and uh, each of them in their chariot, they went out to meet Jehu and they met him, uh, interestingly enough, on the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. The property, remember, Ahab had come to Naboth, wanted to buy his property so he could put a garden in near the palace. And uh, Naboth said, I can't give you that land up. That would violate the law of Moses and it would be a betrayal of my family. And so Jezebel and so he pouted over it. And Jezebel said, listen, grow up and act like a king. I mean, kings are supposed to just kill people like this where she came from. And uh, so she arranged for his death and he was killed. And and it was because of that death of her that was uh, of him. Naboth, it was kind of the last straw with God that he then pronounced the judgment on Jezebel and on the on the house of um, uh, of uh, uh, Ahab. So, you know, if God is so patient, you know, it uh, the old saying, you know, the uh, God's justice so it talks about justice in general, but uh, God's justice certainly is true of it. Sometimes it it grinds very, very slowly, but it grinds very, very fine. Uh, God gets Two, in his timing, uh, judging wrongdoing in the world. And but he knows what the timing is going to be. And it's really poetic justice because they're going to die. And even Jezebel is going to die and her body be left on that plot of land that she arranged the murder of both Naboth and his sons in order to steal it away uh, from them. And so they come and they end up meeting there. As you see, the forces kind of uh, pull up in kind of a Western movie in your mind. And it happened when Joram saw Jehu that he said, is it peace, Jehu? And he's probably asking, uh, is it peace with Syria? Are we having a problem on the military front? And Jehu answered, what peace? As long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many. Ow. I think we've got a loyalty problem here. So here he is. He's calling this man's mother uh, a spiritual harlot and a spiritual witch. So he realizes, all right, we've got a problem here. And so Joram then turned around. He fled. He said to his nephew Ahaziah, treachery, treason, Ahaziah, and flee and now Jehu drew his bow with full strength and he shot 
uh, Jehoram between his arms and the arrow came out at his heart. And then he sank down in his chariot dead. And then Jehu said to Bidkar, his captain, pick him up, throw him onto the track of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Again, poetic justice. For remember when you and I were riding together behind Ahab, his father, and, and word got to those men that were following Ahab what had been done to Naboth. It didn't sit well with them. And apparently, Jehu and Bidkar were present with Ahab when Elijah came to Ahab and declared to him, because of what you've done here, I'm going to bring judgment on your bloodline and I'm going to judge Jezebel personally for this. And so they realize, wow, remember when we heard Elijah speak this to Ahab and now we're a part of the fulfillment of God's prophecy. Remember when you and I were riding together behind Ahab, his father, and the Lord laid this burden upon him. And surely, surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this plot, says the Lord. And now, therefore, take, throw him on the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. In verse 26 is where we come to learn uh, what we didn't learn uh, concerning the event 15 years earlier at the at the murder of uh, Naboth is that Jezebel not only had Naboth killed in order to get the land, but also all of his blood descendants, all of his sons and heirs. So really uh, a real eye for an eye, a real uh, pure justice is being uh, meted out here. But when Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw all of this going on, he fled by the road to Beth uh, Hagan. And so Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also in the chariot. He also is a blood relative uh, of Joram and knew that he would become a kinsman redeemer and a threat to Jehu. And so he needs to be uh, executed as well. And they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is by uh, Iblim. And then he fled to Megiddo and he died there and his servants carried him in the chariot to Jerusalem, buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David, given a proper burial in the 11th year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah had become king over Judah. Now, when uh, Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. So. Probably Jehu has killed uh, uh, her son, uh, Joram, uh, probably, you know, within the last three hours. So news like that spreads quickly and uh, word would have gone to her and, and she's still alive. She's being called the queen mother at this time in the northern kingdom of Israel, the only one to be called the queen mother in a pagan term. And uh, so she hears of of what has happened here. And she realizes Jehu is going to come after her as well. And so she put paint on her eyes and uh, adorned her head, got her hair and everything all situated and then looked through a window. And so, um, you know, some people accuse her of uh, vanity here. Um, Well, for sure, (laughs) you know, so. She doesn't want to be out in public. She's a queen without getting her hair fixed up and get some makeup on. 
And uh, some people think that she's attempting to seduce Jehu. I don't know. I mean, maybe that. I think that she realizes uh, that she's in uh, deep trouble here. She's going to try and shame Jehu out of what he's been called to do in, in uh, executing her as well. But I, I think that she's just going to, going to have a stiff upper lip and uh, she's going to go down as a queen. So best foot forward. So she gets herself all looking nice. And uh, his, I mean, historical descriptions of Jezebel is that she was uh, supposed to be a very stunning woman uh, in terms of a physical beauty. And so she then looked through a window. And then as Jehu entered at the gate there of the city, she then initiated the conversation. Is it peace, Zimri, uh, murder of your Master, And so uh, she's going to try and shame him and accuse him of being um, uh, 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 shame him into not uh, executing uh, her. So she's just kind of defiant to the end. So she calls Jehu the traitor, likens him to Zimri, who all the way back in first Kings chapter 16, he became a king by rebelling against his master, Elah. But his reign only lasted seven days before he was killed when the nation chose to call uh, follow Omri instead. And Omri was the beginning of the dynasty of Ahab. And so basically what Jezebel is intimating to Jehu is, is that you're not going to succeed uh, in this rebellion. You've got seven days at the most before you're killed and uh, and and uh, the reign of uh, Ahab continues on. And so this is the accusation. She's trying to shame him and, and call him a traitor and all. He seems incapable of the emotion of shame. She's picking the wrong guy to try and uh, speak this to, as we'll see in a moment. He looked up at the window that she's looking out of, and she's the only one looking out. And so he yells and he said, who's on my side? Who? And so two or three eunuchs looked out at him. So he knows, as was the case in ancient um, harems and kings, they would castrate uh, young men. And then uh, the men, young men would grow physically into, you know, adulthood and be strong people. But they could be safe in the harems. Uh, so you had that kind of strong help, but they were no danger sexually uh, to to the queen or to the harems. And uh, so Jehu knows these guys are up there. And so that's what a eunuch is. Two or three of uh, two or th- so two or three eunuchs. So a eunuch is not a munchkin. A munchkin is a little thing in the Wizard of Oz. A eunuch is a big Strong, young guy. And uh, so two or three of the eunuchs then poked their hat out at the same time, uh, in essence saying, we're on your side. Uh, They weren't happily employed, evidently. Uh, Can you imagine, though, all kidding aside, can you imagine being a servant in the household of Jezebel? Can you imagine the... The darkness, the occult, the wickedness, the evil. I mean, what kind of a person she must have been 24 hours a day. And here you are spending your life serving this monstrous person. And now here's a chance to bring 
all of that to an end. And so they were in essence saying, you know, count me in. And so then Jehu said to them, throw her down. And so they threw her down, probably from a second story height, at least maybe even higher as she is, you know, maybe kicking and screaming and they throw her out of the window. Uh, she doesn't fall cleanly. She falls against the wall and stone that is out and uh, blood starts flying all over the place on the wall and then on the horses and Jehu and and uh, the chariot and all. And she falls down to the ground. And then just so he wants to make sure that he's dead, he runs the horses and the chariot uh, over her a few times. You got to give him points for being faithful. The Bible says a faithful you want to hand these things over to faithful men. And so. You know, he did it and uh, and uh, and just to make sure that she was dead. You know, Jezebel brings a couple of Proverbs to mind. Proverbs chapter 29, verse one. He who is often rebuked and hardens his heart will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. She woke up that morning and she thought it was going to be a day like any other day. And it didn't turn out to be a day like any other day. Because God had warned and he had warned and he had warned and he had warned and he had warned. And she did not take him seriously. And then one day God says, that's it. And then he judged her. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 7. The memory of the righteous is blessed. Think of a righteous person that you know that... how it blesses you to remember them. But the name of the wicked will rot. Very well put, isn't it? The name of the wicked will rot. Jezebel has ruined her biblically. You wonder why, why we aren't on Sunday morning. Why doesn't he ever dedicate a Jezebel? Why is anybody naming their daughters Jezebel anywhere in the world? Because the name's been completely ruined by the rot of this woman and the evil here in, uh, in the Bible. And yet, what is so important to understand, and God would declare it through the prophet Ezekiel, when he said, I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord. Therefore, turn and live. He would have much rather have Jezebel repent of her sin than to bring this judgment upon her. He enjoys that much, much more. And so here is this trampling of her underfoot. And when he then enters into the palace and uh, he sat down and he ate and drank. He's a very seasoned Military man, nothing about what he has seen has affected his appetite one bit. He's hungry. So he goes in for a bite. And then he said, after they're done eating, go now and see to this accursed woman and bury that body because, after all, she was the king's daughter. Now, she, he has forgotten that Elijah said that she would not be buried and... and uh, Uh, There wouldn't be enough of her left uh, to bury her because the dogs are going to eat her body by the wall of Jezreel. 
So he gives the command, go out. I mean, he's calmed down a little bit and go ahead and, and, and give her a burial. And so they went to bury her, but they could find no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. That's all that was left of, uh, of her uh, body when they went out to try and find it. There was her head and her hands and also her feet. It's interesting, as someone has noted, that even the dogs instinctively turned away from the skull, that is the mine, the hands and the feet of Jezebel, which had been used to bring such evil into the nation. Even they wouldn't eat what was given over to that kind of evil. You talk about dogs having some kind of a sense or something. Maybe they did in that uh, particular case. And therefore they came back and gave the report to him. And he said, this is the word of the Lord. He remembers, which he spoke by his prophet Elijah the Tishbite, saying, on the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuse, as garbage, on the surface of the field in the plot at Jezreel, so that they shall not say, here lies Jezebel. And so, again, ironically, just as the body of her son was thrown onto the property that belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite, uh, she was eaten, her skull, her hands, her feet, they, they were left on that same uh, piece of property, the very ground that she had murdered that man in order to get. Again, God's justice so uh, poetic and so uh, perfect. And so her corpse, uh, Jehu said, I want you, it's to be treated like refuse, like garbage. It's not to be even given a proper burial. There wasn't to be any marker, no gravestone, no mourning, no memorial. There wasn't to be any sadness for this evil woman. And there wasn't to be a place where she got buried and then future uh, generations of evil people would then uh, come and say, ooh, this is where Jezebel's uh, body lies. God says, I want every every part of uh, I don't want to even leave that much of her behind beyond what it is that she's done, uh, you know, wickedly in the history of the nation uh, of Israel. The fulfillment of that prophecy that Elijah had given uh, many, many, many years before, uh, just an indication uh, to the children of Israel and to God's people who were wanting to be in tune with God at all, that he was continuing to just actively intervene in their history. He's trying to get the attention of the nation and trying to get them to acknowledge his power, to acknowledge his lordship. They wouldn't acknowledge it in his mercy and in his grace. So he's trying to get them to acknowledge it in his judgment that he is the true and the living God. You say, how did it communicate that? Because here is Jezebel, the great introducer of Baal worship into Israel, the great figurehead of Baal worship. And basically what the Lord is communicating to the nation of Israel is Baal is a false god 
Baal was completely unable to protect her from my judgment. And it was a warning to them to turn then from their sin and to get right with God so he would not have to pour his judgment out on them. They would not heed the message and they will end up going into bondage to the Assyrians. But that's much further down the road. We'll stop there tonight. Let's stand together.